You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I spent a lovely sunny Friday this week in Malibu with some of my coworkers drinking glasses of wine that typically cost what I pay for for a bottle of wine. So that was an enlightening experience, if nothing less. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got The Invitation. Now, this film's a tricky one for me because... I kind of see what the filmmaker was trying to do with this movie, other than rip off Hide and Seek, which is very similar to what this movie was. But it never quite achieved what I think they were trying to get at. And to me, it feels like the film's budget was a major cause on the restraint of certain aspects of this film, which is a shame because it did have a lot of potential that it never really loves lives up to. The story was pretty good. The idea behind it was really good. It was just never adequately executed. What it is instead is just a hundred minutes of standard horror movie fare and tired cliches, tired genre cliches, which, you know, as I said, is a shame. The actors were great in it, though. So at least if you go see it or watch it or however, wherever you see it, the good news is the acting's not cringy. So at least that makes it more or less watchable. So silver lining. All right. On to this week's topic. This week, we're wrapping up the entire month with a speed run through UK cinema. We're going to cover a little bit of some of its major players, major film movements, franchises, and its seemingly unbreakable reliance on Hollywood. Before we start today, just it's a clarification thing because I know I, who if you know me, you know that I'm a huge lover of British panel shows and the British Isles in general, sometimes have trouble with this. We are covering Great Britain's cinematic history, not the entire UK's. They are different. Great Britain refers to England, Wales, and Scotland, while when using UK, it means you're also referring to Northern Ireland, which we're not covering today. And honestly, the major stuff of UK cinema is mostly even just kind of restrained to England and its origin as, you know, these major brushstroke episodes cover just that. The major stuff, the major stuff was mostly English. So yeah, heads up, that's what we're doing today. And that's the difference between British or Britain and UK. The more you know, let's do this. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Thank you. 
Unlike our last two countries, Britain's film industry actually predates that lovely 1895 event and features many of the forgotten and or lesser known founding fathers of film. In fact, the world's first moving picture was shot by a French artist, Louis Le Prince, in 1888 in Leeds. Also, the first patent for 35mm celluloid film was patented by British inventor William Freeze Green in 1890. The first camera to shoot with 35mm film was actually achieved in the UK as well and was invented by Robert W. Paul and Bert Akers. Paul had been an instrument maker and kinetoscope parlor operator and the first person in Britain to show any paying individual a short film, while Akers was a well-established photographer. These two could have been the Lumiere brothers as they shot their first short film, Incident at Clovelly Cottage, in February of 1895 with their camera. But alas, the two fell out over an argument over the patent not long after. In 1896, the Lumieres brought their show to London, and that's how the British cinema ultimately got its kickstart. Speaking of... Robert W. Paul, he would continue making innovations when it came to film cameras for years afterwards, notably creating a motion picture camera that could actually crank film forwards and backwards, which allowed for multiple exposures to occur. Think like, you know, trick Victorian ghost photos that he figured out how to do that, but with moving pictures. This would most notably be used in his short film Scrooge or Marley's Ghost from 1901. Paul would also construct Britain's first film studio, Muswell Hill, which was located in North London and built in 1898. That same year, he became the first filmmaker, according to the British film catalog anyway, to use intertitles in his film, Our New General Servant. Whether or not he was the actual first person to use intertitles, however, has been debated by film historians. Another early British film innovator was Cecil B. Hepworth, the son of a magic lantern showman. By 1899, Hepworth had set up his own film laboratory and was soon producing over 100 films a year. Hepworth was a producer before a producer was officially known as a producer. He would finance many other silent film director's projects in addition to his own. Hepworth's own body of work as a director, was more comedic in tone, and his most famous short is probably Rescued by Rover from 1905. Through all of this, Hepworth managed to make the British film market competitive on the world stage for the first time. Other innovations of his in these early days included his recognition and noticing the potential of an actor's star power, and he was one of the first directors to have popular characters from previous films appear in his other films. Hepworth would also, in 1910, invent the Vivaphone, which was an early attempt applying sync sound to film. The device would be used in the UK and also a little bit in the United States in Canada. Despite all this, though, unfortunately, Hepworth would suffer a similar fate to that of George Melier, as he could not or would not adapt his films in the 1920s to the changing tastes of the day. His company would go into receivership in 1924, and his film negatives were ultimately melted down for their silver. Hepworth spent the rest of his life directing commercials. From what I could tell, only one of his feature-length films, 1920's Helen of Four Gates, still exists today in its entirety. Two years after the Lumieres had brought their films to the UK, French production company Gaumont expanded its business to the country, forming Gaumont British Picture Corporation. 
They would, in 1915, build a studio in West London, which became the first UK building constructed solely for film production. 1902 saw the foundation of Ealing Studios, then known as Will Barker Studios, which today is the oldest continuously running film studio site in the world. Despite a slow but steady growth before it, after World War I, the British film industry was bleak because, well, they'd just been in a whole ass war. It also probably didn't help that, despite, you know, not from a lack of trying to be relevant on the world stage, it didn't help that the biggest British movie star in the world, Charlie Chaplin, was making his name an ocean and an entire continent away in Hollywood. Despite this, though, the British industry did see a slight growth throughout the 1920s, but the country couldn't keep up with the U.S., whose films made up a quarter of what was shown in the U.K. during the silent era. At this time, in fact, only 5% of UK films were shown in its own country's theaters. A small recession in 1924 would force many of the British studios to close, and it wouldn't be until three years later that the Cinematograph Films Act of 1927 would be passed, which would place a requirement on the percentage of British films that had to be shown in British theaters. The act was technically a success. Production did shoot up 500% after this, and audiences for British films did become larger than the quota required, but the films tended to be lower in quality as they'd been slapped together pretty haphazardly to meet said quota. These films would eventually be known as quota quickies and actually impeded the creative growth of the British film industry. Gaubon would open Islington Studios in 1920, which is where Alfred Hitchcock would get his start. Hitchcock would have established himself as a master of the thriller genre by the late 1930s before signing a seven-year contract with David O. Selznick and relocating to Hollywood to work for him. Before he left, though, Hitchcock would direct what many people say was Britain's first talkie, which was blackmail from 1929, though the film is only partially so. In reality, the first full British talkie was technically the clue of the new pin, which had released earlier that same year. Like, you know, every other market, sound would see the emergence of many, many, many new directors and talents, and this included directors like Anthony Asquith and Walter Ford. 1929 also saw the beginning of the first documentary film movement in the UK. This began with John Grierson's Drifters, a silent film about a fishery. John Grierson would be the person to actually coin the term documentary when referring to nonfiction films. London Films would be the largest exporter of big-budget British films throughout the 1930s. Founded by Alexander Korda, a Hungarian expat, London Films and his other studio, Denim Film Studios, even enticed United Artists to invest in them, a venture that would actually cost them financially in the long run. Denim would be responsible for the country's first forays into Technicolor as well, with 1937's Wings of the Morning, which was a British production produced by 20th Century Fox. Another major player in the 1930s was J. Arthur Rank, a co-founder of the British National Films Company, who would help create Pinewood Studios in 1936. Despite all this, you know, positive sounding stuff, rising costs and overconfidence in their being able to break into the American film market caused a financial crisis for the British film industry in 1937 after an all-time high of 192 films were released in 1936, and they couldn't find a place to put them all. Of the 640 British production companies that had been registered between 1925 and 1936, only 20 would still be active at the end of 1937. 
The new Cinematograph Film Act of 1938, which was an update to the one from 1927, provided new incentives for filmmakers via a vetting system. This was in the hopes that studios would make fewer films, which would in theory be higher in quality, and therefore mercifully brought an end to the quota quickies. It also encouraged American investment and imports into the British film industry. One of the results of this was the creation of MGM British, an English subsidiary of the largest American studio at that time. And then, of course, came World War II. Britain declared war on Germany on September 3, 1939, at which time cinemas were ordered to close, a statute that remained in effect for about three weeks or so in most places because people were not happy with losing their movie theaters. In fact, cinema going would increase in Britain during the war years, leading to the realization, like many other countries' governments, that they could use the cinema to get the people on their side. As a result, no matter what you went and saw during the war years, newsreels played before every film alerting the British people on the progress of the war. As the war raged on, documentaries were made to capture the war front in Britain, with docs like London Can Take It from 1940, which covered the Blitz. The Crown Film Unit, an organization within the government's Ministry of Information, was founded to make films for the public, while also making documentaries to keep the British people, you know, pro the war. In fact, the documentary as a genre as a whole leapt leaps and bounds forward innovation-wise because of this era of wartime filmmaking. These documentaries would also begin influencing narrative films from this time, especially, unsurprisingly, the ones that dealt with World War II while the war was, you know, raging on. Films like 1944's The Way Ahead, which was directed by Carol Reed, even used documentary footage from the war within the film itself. Other than wartime documentaries or wartime-themed films, nearly all of which were just steeped in propaganda, melodramas were quite popular with British audiences at this time, but even in films like 1940's Gaslight, which was a film about a husband convincing his wife that she's losing her mind, which is, yes, where the term gaslighting comes from, within the film there's still a theme of, like, the enemy within, which does tie back to, you know, paranoias during the war. Everybody was afraid that their neighbor, their friend, their loved ones, what have you, were German spies. So this kind of still tied into that, even though it wasn't about that. But, you know, all of the things kind of surrounding the war were very much a part of the British cinema identity at this time. Cinema going in the UK would reach its peak the year after the war in 1946, but would suffer a steady decline from there to its lowest point in 1960. But before that, in the wake of World War II, British cinema had a brief golden age before being overwhelmed by American cinema once more, a state it's arguably been stuck in ever since. Examples stemming from the height of Britain's golden age include 1948's The Red Shoes, which was the most successful film in the United States the year of its release. Also that year, Hamlet, starring Laurence Olivier, became the first non-American produced film to win Best Picture. During World War II, J. Arthur Rank, the founder of Pinewood Studios, as I mentioned earlier, financially speaking, had had a grand old time. In the years preceding the war, Rank had bought a major theater chain and absorbed Gaumont British, Paramount Cinemas, and Lime Grove Studios, gaining a ton more theaters and production facilities in the process. 
1942, the rank organization owned 619 theaters in addition to all the facilities it had at its disposal, making Rank arguably the most powerful man in British cinema at this time. After the war, Rank controlled companies that made some of the most successful British films of the era, including aforementioned Red Shoes, as well as 1946's A Matter of Life and Death, which is great, by the way, and 1947's Black Narcissus. Now, these three films were actually written and directed by two of the best collaborators in British cinema, who I will talk about a little bit later. One of Rank's major goals after the war became a method to establish a strong, steady channel for British films within the United States. Around 1946-1947, Rank actually met with several of the American movie moguls to negotiate deals to sell distribution and exhibition rights for his massive catalog of movies he had. And it was looking real good there for a minute. But then the British Parliament did a thing. In 1947, seemingly out of nowhere, a tariff on all film imports was levied, placing a 75% tax on any non-British films coming into the country. And guess who this super duper pissed off? The day after the tariff took effect, the MPAA in the U.S., which oversaw and continues to do so, the interest of those movie moguls Rank had been trying to make deals with, announced that from that moment going forward, no American films would be imported into the U.K. until further notice. Unsurprisingly, that tariff ended nine months after it was enacted with the Cinematograph Film Act of 1948. In fact, there would no longer be a quota or tariff regarding the import of U.S. or any other foreign films. With a caveat, the U.S. film companies would have to keep the money made at the U.K. box office within the country, which is in part why to this day the U.S. has such a hold on that industry and why in part so many productions from the big studios are shot there. It was also likely a big reason for the influx of Hollywood pictures being shot in Europe starting in the 1950s. Rank's deal with the moguls never came to fruition, as the movie moguls were forced to relinquish their theater holdings in 1948, after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that owning both a movie studio and a movie theater created a monopoly. Despite this, the Rank Organization, as well as the Associated British Picture Corporation, or ABPC, would dominate the cinema industry in Britain, and by the end of the decade, the two would control about a quarter of all British cinemas. That, coupled with the fact that they didn't have to commit to a certain number of British films in their theaters, destabilized the production industry within the country. A year later, in 1949, the National Film Finance Corporation was founded to offer state support for producers. This fund would allow films like Carol Reed's The Third Man from 1949 and later Bill Forsyth's Gregory's Girl from 1980 to be made. In all, 750 British films were produced through this fund until its dissolution in 1985. Additionally, in 1950, the Edie Levy was implemented in the hopes to do something similar to the NFFC by creating a film fund by taxing cinema tickets. Then, based on the box office of a film, the tax that had been applied to the tickets would be reallocated to the producers whose films were performing well at the box office. Problem with this was it really only benefited the bigger films and therefore a lot of money was going to non-British producers and instead into the British registered American companies. This too would be discontinued in 1985. 
So now that you know some of the things that were going on behind like the scenes, like way behind the scenes, why don't we take a look at the films that were actually getting made? War films were insanely popular at this time with primarily male audiences up until about the mid-1950s. In fact, this era was the first time that male cinema attendance rivaled that of the female attendance. If you watch one of these flicks, it's not surprising that it was more popular with the dudes, especially looking at the gender dichotomies in them. Like the dudes in these films are like super macho men and they're struggling with their manliness and their valor, which was more of a commentary on men in the 1950s than actual wartime. In these films, women were either completely ignored or pushed to the margins of the films, despite the fact that more women had and were continuing to enter the workforce since the war. The Coldest Story from 1954 and The Cruel Sea from 1953 are great places to start for this specific genre. Then there was comedy films. Comedy has always been quite popular in Britain, with Ealing Studios being at the forefront of the genre during this time. Ealing produced films like The Lady Killers from 1955 and The Man in the White Suit from 51, which were not only successful domestically, but internationally as well. Ely films by and large rejected the acceptance of certain wartime practices that continued into peacetime, the biggest example of which is probably food rationing, which continued for nine years after the end of World War II. Then, of course, probably the biggest comedy series to come out of Britain was the Carry On series, which began in 1958 with Carry On Sergeant. This first film in the series is a great example of a post-war comedy by and large, as it reflects the sentiments that were still felt within the country over a decade after the end of it. In fact, many of the Carry On films would serve as commentaries and more or less a gauge for the social attitudes of the changing times as the films released over the years, while implementing the British comedic traditions of music hall, which is quite similar to American vaudeville, as well as seaside postcards, kind of that humor, which these were like naughty little postcards and rife with stereotypical characters and innuendo. The carry-on films were made on strict budgets and time constraints using the same corral of not only cast, but crew largely as well. In all, 30 carry-on films were made between 1958 and 1978, with a final film releasing in 1992. In addition to these, there was also Christmas specials, a television series, and a few stage shows. The carry-on series boasts the most films of any British film franchise. Now, the comedy and war films and the like and the dramas at this time, they relied very heavily on realism and they were stylistically pretty subdued and pretty much everything that went on in these films, like within the plots and what have you, is more or less within the realm of possibility. While this was the prevalent trend in UK cinema at this time, it was not the only one, as you'll soon see. On the complete opposite side of that coin, Hammer Films began making its low-budget horror thriller films in the mid-1950s, which were reviled by critics, but very popular with audiences the world over. Hammer Film Productions began churning out these gothic fantasy and horror flicks after the success of its adaptation of a popular sci-fi serial show, The Quartermass Experiment. The adaptation, slightly renamed to exclude the E from Experiment, 1956's The Quartermass X. Experiment was a surprise hit with audience goers and quickly spawned a sequel. Not long after that, Hammer released The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957, their first Dracula film, Horror of Dracula, in 58, which starred Christopher Lee and turned him into a horror icon almost overnight, and The Mummy, of course, in 1959. 
Scores of sequels and spinoffs and the like would follow, with Hammer dominating the worldwide horror market at its peak, mostly thanks to its major partnerships with pretty much every American film company at the time, and several of the European ones as well. Hammer thrived into the loss of its American funding in the late 1960s and 70s, and the company ceased all productions by the mid-1980s. Hammer is still around, however, and the production side was actually revived in 2008. Notable films that have come out of modern Hammer include The Woman in Black from 2012 and The Lodge from 2019. Another defector from the realist trends of the 1940s and 50s was the duo of Powell and Pressburger. After meeting while working for Alexander Korda, Michael Powell, an experienced director, and Emmerich Pressburger, a newly arrived Hungarian screenwriter, teamed up to form their company Archers in 1943. During the war, the duo put out several experimental war films, like One of Our Aircraft is Missing from 1941, which, amongst their other films, combined propaganda and spectacle almost seamlessly. Powell and Pressburger were doing Fellini-esque work before Fellini was even Fellini, combining fantasy, dreams, and illusion into the worlds of their films. A Matter of Life and Death, for example, was one of theirs, in which a World War II pilot teeters between life and death, with both his reality and his version of afterlife playing out on screen. They also did The Red Shoes, which features extensive scenes of the lead, basically having an elaborate psychotic break. Powell and Pressburger's films at one time or another angered Winston Churchill, the Ministry of Information, and the Catholic League of Decency as they experimented with new styles of filmmaking and technicolor. Powell and Pressburger parted ways after 1956's Ill Met by Moonlight, but continue to be considered one of Britain's best filmmaking teams of all time to this day. Starting around 1959, influenced by the French version, the UK saw the briefest of emergences of its own new wave, which actually combined several different concurrently occurring movements under this banner. Firstly, there was the socially conscious films that had dominated the 1950s, so there was a tonal foundation for what these films would strive to expand upon. The second thing was a documentary film movement in the country known as Free Cinema, which had kicked off in the mid-50s and was a series of programs featuring short films by different filmmakers, which initially screened at the National Film Theatre in London. The first of these screenings featured just three films, Lindsay Anderson's Oh Dreamland, Carol Rice and Tony Richardson's Mama Don't Allow, and Lorenza Mazzetti's Together, which was the only fiction film of the three. Free Cinema was called this as its intention was to omit proper propaganda and commercial appeal in an attempt to present the, quote, poetry of the everyday. Lindsay Anderson, arguably the leader of this movement, coined that phrase. Free Cinema's manifesto, because of course they had a manifesto, was written for their first program and reads as such. Quote, These films were not made together, nor with the idea of showing them together. But when they came together, we felt they had an attitude in common. Implicit in this attitude is a belief in freedom and the importance of people and the significance of the everyday. As filmmakers, we believe that no film can be too personal. The image speaks. Sound amplifies and comments. Size is irrelevant. Perfection is not an aim. An attitude means style. A style means an attitude. And then thirdly, the British wave would appear thanks to the, quote, angry young men, which are a group of mostly working and middle class playwrights and authors who became popular in the 1950s. Major members of this movement that contributed directly to film include John Brain and John Osborne, whose play Don't Look Back in Anger would serve as a major catalyst for the movement. 
These men's anger, quote unquote, came from the frustration and disillusionment of British society and the desire to break from the life cycles emulated by their parents. For example, living out your entire life in your hometown and marrying a girl you met in your hometown because that's what your parents did and that's what their parents did and that's what their parents did and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera. And why wasn't that good enough for you? Female characters in movies like this, unsurprisingly given the name of the movement, were often clingy and needy, a personification of the societal pressures for the men to remain tethered to the world they've always known. Mix all of these three together and you got yourself some British New Wave. Stylistically, British New Wave emulated many of the same styles and themes within French New Wave. British New Wave films were also typically in black and white. They were spontaneously in their styling, shot in the real world using unprofessional actors or unknown actors. And, you know, the, you know, with the, with the untethered camera and that led to a more documentary looking style. These films were an attempt at, quote, kitchen sink realism, an antithesis to the popular films of the day we spoke on earlier. Notable British New Wave films include Jack Clayton's A View from the Top from 1959, Tony Richardson's Look Back in Anger from 1959, and Billy Liar from 1963. British New Wave was a far smaller and honestly quite a bit lesser covered movement in comparison to the other movements of the same name from other countries, as British New Wave only yielded about 10 films or so. British New Wave was only around for about four or five years and basically died in part due to the success of one of its founders. Tony Richardson found unexpected worldwide recognition and success with his film Tom Jones from 1964, which was a comedy film based on the 1749 novel The History of Tom Jones of Foundling. This film would earn Richardson a Best Picture and Best Directing Oscar. On the heels of Tom Jones came 1964's Hard Day's Night, as well as the first James Bond films, which we'll get to in a bit. After that, the mainstream cinema in Britain surged in international popularity as these films would become an early part of the British invasion of the mid-60s in the U.S. The decline of the free cinema movement and new wave, which consisted strictly of British filmmakers, would end any further movement in the U.K. that would feature unique, solely British voices. Like we discussed a little bit briefly last week, the 1960s saw the U.S. support of European film expand exponentially. This was especially the case in the U.K., in fact, some historians argue that this era of the 1960s and 70s in British filmmaking is actually more of an Anglo-American era than strictly a British one, as many of the most popular quote-unquote British films at this time were actually directed by American directors living in the UK. This included the aforementioned Hard Day's Night, as well as Murder on the Orient Express from 1974, which was directed by Sidney Lumet. Also, this injection of American co-productions led to films about, quote, swinging London, which was a term coined in a 1966 Time magazine article. Americans had become obsessed with all things British and declared London the center of music and fashion. 1965's Alfie and 1966's Blow Up are prime examples of this particular trend. And of course, the 1960s also saw the emergence of the James Bond franchise, the longest-running British film franchise, which was initially produced by Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli, and originally starred Sean Connery. Saltzman and Broccoli founded Aeon Films and acquired funding from United Artists to produce the first of the James Bond films. 
Based on the character James Bond from Ian Fleming's book series, the first James Bond film, Dr. No, which was actually based on the sixth James Bond novel, was released in 1962 and at the time was only a modest hit. But by the time the third entry in the franchise, Goldfinger, released in 1964, James Bond was a worldwide phenomenon, which it has more or less continued to be over the last 60 years. To date, Aeon Films has made 25 James Bond movies, with the most recent being 2021's No Time to Die. Six actors have taken up the mantle of 007, the former commander in the British Navy turned MI6 spy and assassin with a license to kill. Several blacklisted directors from the U.S. made their way to the U.K. after the HUAC trials, with many of them making the move permanent by becoming British citizens, as did some of those who were sick of Hollywood censorship. Stanley Kubrick, for example, who was not a blacklister but a willing expat, is one of the better known to do this. Initially, Kubrick went to the UK in order to make 1962's Lolita, taking advantage of the Eddie Levy while maintaining a distance from Hollywood and its censorship. Kubrick would follow up Lolita with 1963's Dr. Strangelove, which was also shot in the UK, shortly after which Kubrick made the move a permanent one. The practice of the American studios heavily investing in UK films would continue until they would heavily reduce funding in the late 1960s and into the 70s as the civil rights movement reached its peak, the Vietnam War kicked off, the new Hollywood movement rose out of the civil unrest in the States at this time, all of which led to the British invasion fads kind of slowly going to the wayside and pretty much every area except music. Some U.S. productions would still shoot in the U.K. in the years following this. A notable one is Star Wars, which released in 1977, but it wasn't happening anywhere near the numbers it once was. Soon after the U.S. began pulling funding, the state reduced funding as well. With cinema attendance going on the decline, and with TV now very much a staple in the lives of the British people, filmmakers began attempting to make film versions of popular TV shows to entice people back to the cinemas. This led to films like Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1975 and Life of Brian from 1979. By 1980, after an already rough decade, British film saw its lowest year of film production in almost 70 years, and that number continued to decrease. Lack of audience was mainly to blame, and so was the end of the Eddie Levy in 1985, which, amongst the things we discussed earlier, had also allowed studios making films in the UK to write off a large amount of a production's cost. Hence why so many U.S. films had gone to shoot there. The loss of those productions meant that much of British film had to rely on television funding. One of the biggest directors to come out of British cinema in the 1980s is probably David Putnam, so not all was lost. He produced Chariots of Fire from 1981, which won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And then the very next year, he did the exact same thing with Gandhi. The success of these two films, both period dramas, led to an influx of those kinds of movies to the market with varying degrees of success. The other most notable film from this trend is probably 1984's The Killing Field. Now we're going to get into like TV's involvement with modern British cinema. It started with Channel 4, which is a free public service television network in the UK, and they began becoming a large part of film production, which, in addition to other things, allowed TV actors and directors and like to move quote-unquote up into feature films. In addition to this, one of Channel 4's requirements with their founding was to provide funding for quote minority audiences, which led to films like My Beautiful Laundrette from 1985, which dealt with racial and gay issues in the country at 
that time and starred Daniel Day-Lewis in his first leading role. The 1990s were a far more fruitful era in British filmmaking, and by 1996, the industry had skyrocketed from a mere £104 million in investment in 1989 to £741 million just seven years later. Most of this funding, however, was coming from Channel 4 and the BBC when Hollywood wasn't doling out the cash, which, despite it being heavily reduced, was still a major reliance. According to critic Neil Watson, it was hoped that £90 million ear marked from the new National Lottery would provide a happy medium between the TV-funded films and the Hollywood-funded ones, but that, quote, corporate and equity finance for the UK film production industry continues to be thin on the ground, and most production companies operating in the sector remain hopelessly undercapitalized. Even when a British film company was successful, like in the case of Polygram Filmed Entertainment, for example, which produced Four Weddings and a Funeral from 94, Bean from 97, and Notting Hill from 99... These three combined with others nearly single-handedly revitalized U.S. interest in U.K. films once more would ultimately be sold and absorbed into Universal Pictures in 1999, in doing so killing any hope of a non-TV, non-Hollywood-supported U.K. film studio from standing on its own two feet for the time being. Merchant Ivory, another British film company, managed to make several films with minimal outside funding, producing, for example, Kenneth Branagh's 90s Shakespeare films, as well as a series of costume dramas including 1995. Sense and Sensibility, and 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Danny Boyle, one of the most familiar names, emerged at this time as well, with 1996's Train Spotting, which became an almost instant cult classic. One of the reasons that production boomed in the 90s in the UK was because major tax incentives returned to the UK, leading to a major influx of Hollywood production. That includes the first Mission Impossible film, Star Wars Episode One, and the 1999 version of The Mummy. In fact, the practice of the U.S. and U.K. holding hands in the film production sphere has pretty much remained the same to this day, with local fundings in the U.K. still mainly coming from Channel 4, the BBC, or the U.K. Film Council. Additionally, companies like Working Title, for example, partner extensively with Universal Pictures and its subsidiaries, releasing projects like the widely successful Bridget Jones film starting in 2001, and most recently Last Night in Soho from 2021, which was a co-production with Focus Features. The biggest example of a UK-US collab from the early 2000s, however, easily occurred when Heyday Films partnered with Warner Brothers to make the worldwide phenom that was slash is the Harry Potter franchise, which released from 2001 to 2010. I don't gotta tell anybody like what Harry Potter's deal is, do I? Like most of you who listen to me on each week are millennials, so you know what Harry Potter is. If you don't, I don't know what you were doing. Anyway, all of the eight Harry Potter films, they were shot in the UK with Leavesden Studios being the home base. Warner Brothers would purchase Leavesden in 2010 and would become the first Hollywood studio to have a permanent location in the UK since the 1940s. To this day, the UK remains a major destination for filmmaking thanks to its massive facilities like Pinewood, Shepperton, and Leavesden. Even without help from American studios, independent British filmmakers continue to make a place for themselves within the industry. For example, Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire from 2008 was completely produced by UK funding and was distributed by Pathé Distribution, which was a French-based company. To this day, the UK film industry remains a major part of the British economy, with a billion of pounds plus being spent each year on UK production alone. Currently, British films are actually statistically better received in the U.S. than its own films, and even the lowest budget ones are viewed by audience goers here as higher quality. 
Despite its slow start, the UK cinema market has become one of the major exporters of cinema in the entire world. From its humble beginnings to its hosting of the production of some of the world's biggest films, the UK will more than likely continue to be a happy home for film productions the world over for the foreseeable future. Name? Bond. James Bond. So you're not dead. Hello, Q. I've missed you. It's the most valuable asset this country has. If you feel yourself losing control, I'm not going to lose. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got to buy me a coffee, in which you buy me a coffee so I can stay up late to write scripts. I was up till 2 a.m. last night, and right now I am very jittery on the light blend Phil's coffee I had this morning, so I'm about to go flying through this roof with how caffeinated I am. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next month, we're going to jump into some film theory as we discuss the origins and makeup of four of the most popular genres in film. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.